This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning on the radio. The fighting in Ukraine is moving into a third week. And the question, of course, is how far will Vladimir Putin go in his campaign against the Ukrainian people? Well, here at home, Ted Koppel asks, just how much are Americans willing to sacrifice in hopes of saving Ukraine's fragile democracy? Ten years ago, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta warned that the time would come when an enemy of the United States could hit this country with cyber Pearl Harbor. Any nuclear missile? Sixty years ago, the world came to the brink of nuclear war when this little girl's great grandfather, Nikita Khrushchev, put nuclear tipped missiles in Cuba. It would be a walk in the park comparing to what. Uh, nuclear weapons can do now. What, the world can only wonder, will Vladimir Putin do next? Coming up on Sunday morning. Then to that other two-plus-year-old battle against COVID. There are hopeful signs the worst may be behind us. 
the right time for us to ask our Martha Teichner to go in search of lessons learned. More than 50 million people died of the 1918 flu. You'd expect a pretty big monument to their memory, right? Wrong. This bench in a Vermont cemetery is by far the biggest. In fact, one of the only ones anywhere. The Spanish flu is often referred to as the forgotten flu. Ahead this Sunday morning, a question. Will we forget COVID too? and the lessons it could teach us? She's a queen of country music. He's a best-selling author. And as Lee Cowan tells us, they've collaborated on a project bound to be a real page-turner. Author James Patterson has always had a dream about writing. I wanted to write the kind of book that would be read and reread so many times that the binding would break the book would fall apart and the pages would scatter in the wind. But he never allowed that dream, however, to include Dolly Parton. Well, I think she's done all right. The collaboration between the city slicker and the country icon, later on Sunday morning. And more on Ukraine, including a report from David Pogue on social media's role in the fighting. Moraka on this modern-day retelling of the biblical tale of David and Goliath. Some thoughts from John Dickerson. This war has just begun, but it's not too soon to speculate about Vladimir Putin's endgame. And senior contributor Ted Koppel wonders just how far are Americans willing to go to stop the Russian aggression? Nobody is going to attack the Ukrainian people. Sometimes in weighing what Russian officials are saying now or what they may be saying next week, there are a lot of fake news, there are a lot of fake factories that produce those news. It helps to take a look at what they were saying just a few days ago. We have no plans, no intentions to attack Ukraine. We want no wars. Do we want it? War or not? Of course not. They lied. There are no strikes on civilian infrastructure. No one can possibly know for sure what's next, but we have turned to four people whose life experience and accumulated expertise gives their opinions special weight. People are being fired for speaking against the war. My niece just got arrested in the center of Moscow. She was just walking, and because she's young, the police assumed that she must be protesting against the war. She would just get arrested. Her great-grandfather was Nikita Khrushchev. Nina Khrushcheva defected, that was the term in those days, when Russia was known as the Soviet Union. She is now a professor of international affairs at the New School in New York, but still has close ties to the country where she was born. Putin's numbers are up. You mean his popularity? 71% from 60. Now, can we trust those polls? Oh, or yes. Or the Kremlin? No, no, it's not the Kremlin. It's not the Kremlin. It's the Levada poll. But I suspect when the bodies come back, it'll be in the dark of night, and there won't be anybody there to photograph it. Absolutely. And they already, I mean, they're already information that they're burning those bodies. Really? And, yep. So it's really quite Stalinesque time right now. He's not getting the movement out of the military in Ukraine. He's not making the progress he thought. I believe he's going to turn to cyber. 
Keith Alexander was a four-star general when he ran the NSA, the National Security Agency. Few Americans know more about cyber warfare or Vladimir Putin or how he may retaliate than General Alexander does. I believe he's going to hit Europe and the United States with that cyber. And I believe those attacks will go across a wide spectrum. Can you put it in terms of what the average citizen is going to experience? The average person is going to look at what's happening to their bank, what's happening to their power company or their credit cards or the distribution of goods, whether it's oil and gas or supplies to their stores. All of that could be impacted by cyber attacks. Well, in terms of thinking about modern war, it's not just about territorial conquest, it's what we call hybrid war, information war, influence operations, propaganda, cyber, ransomware attacks. It can be the use of uh, criminal groups, you know, for example. Fiona Hill worked at the Trump White House in the National Security Council, where she served as senior director for Europe and Russia. Her memoir, There Is Nothing For You Here, is just out. In a sense, Fiona, you're saying that we are already engaged in World War III. Exactly. Well, many average American families, particularly in the heartland, have had their sons and daughters in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, and deployed overseas. We're going to have to think that we're all part of this as well. We can't just think of it's the families of other people in America who've been deployed overseas and who have uh, been in harm's way. It may all be all of us right now. The reality is that cyber is today a weapon of war. Without question, it can be used to paralyze another country. It's hard to think of anyone with more government experience than Leon Panetta, once chairman of the House Budget Committee, White House Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense, CIA Director. Attackers could also seek to disable or degrade critical military systems and communication networks. And one of the earliest voices warning of the dangers of cyber warfare. Of these kinds of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor. When you hear Vladimir Putin warning about consequences the likes of which the world has never seen before, everyone immediately assumes that he's talking about nuclear warfare. Could he be talking about cyber warfare? I don't think there's any question he could be talking about cyber warfare. You know, cyber as a weapon means that you don't have to deploy your Air Force or boots on the ground. You can simply sit at a computer and deploy a very sophisticated virus that can take down our electric grid system, take down our financial systems, our government systems, our banking systems. President Biden has repeatedly emphasized that no U.S. troops will be sent to Ukraine. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. At the same time, the president has warned Putin against attacking any one of the 30 nations which are members of NATO. The United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. What's being positive right now, and this is not theoretical, this could be next week or next month, that Vladimir Putin orders Russian troops into one of those Baltic states.
Do we risk nuclear war to respond to that? It's a dangerous moment. Nobody can deny that. We're dealing with somebody who might very well resort to uh, some kind of nuclear weapon or worse. We have drawn a line. And I think if we fail to, to stand by that line, it would deeply undermine our credibility to ourselves and to the world. Well, he wants us to think and to believe, because he's been explicit about it, that the nuclear option is on the table because he has put his nuclear forces on high alert. And so he wants us to, to know that he's thinking about this because one of the things about Vladimir Putin, if, it, if he has an instrument, no matter how cruel and unusual or terrifying uh, that instrument may be, he wants us to think that he would use it. So we have to address this issue seriously, not be intimidated, because that's exactly what he wants, not to be scared and to fall back. My fear is that he's prepared to go as far as he needs to go. And that's why I hope it's, it excludes NATO countries, but we really at this point cannot exclude that possibility. And that would mean that we are at the brink of nuclear war. It will mean that we're exactly at that World War III that we've been talking about for the last three months and so eagerly trying to avoid. So that's, that's also a sign that he's playing, and I hope he's only playing, but playing a very, very, very dangerous game. If he uses the nuclear weapons, I think that's the end of his regime. I think he understands that. I believe the alternative he will use is he'll threaten with nuclear, he will use cyber. And I believe we're going to push back in both those areas. And we have the ability to do the same thing against him. The issue will be, I believe ours will be more focused to go after him than the Russian people. The Russian people are accustomed to enduring pain. The American people, quite frankly, are not. So when it comes to those exchanges of cyber attacks, depriving us of what we need for our daily lives, that's what the Russians have been doing forever. We are accustomed to having what we want when we want it. Yeah, so you bring out a, a great point. And on the surface, what you say makes sense. What happens when that's disturbed? I believe we'll grumble and don't, but it's almost like what happened in World War II. It'll awake the American people, my belief, and they'll say, this has to stop. I don't know where that will go. I have tremendous faith and confidence in the will of the American people to push back when the going gets tough. Sunday morning on CBS News Radio continues in a moment. You're listening to Sunday Morning on CBS News Radio. War is as old as humanity, but the Internet is one of its newest weapons. We asked our David Pogue to survey the front lines. This past week, about 20 countries, including the U.S., have sent weapons to Ukraine. But in this war, the Ukrainians were already well equipped with one particular kind of weapon, social media. Ukraine is a tech-savvy nation. Its citizens have turned every cell phone into a news source and every social media app into a strategic tool of war. Many of the videos depict Ukrainian heroism and defiance, 
and help to build support and empathy around the world. In this one, a Ukrainian woman tells a Russian soldier, take these seeds and put them in your pockets, so at least sunflowers will grow when you all die here. Other videos offer resistance strategies to fellow Ukrainians, like how to make Molotov cocktails. And some posts are intended to humiliate and demoralize the Russian military. In this video, a Ukrainian man mocks Russian tank drivers who run out of gas. You know, we are at war and bombs are falling on our heads. And uh, we uh, want to make sure that we know the recent developments because the situation is just so tense. Two weeks ago, Ina Sovson was a professor and a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Now, She's also a member of the social media resistance. I'm sitting here in a room with, uh, over here, say hello. Oh. Hello, everyone. And they're using the social media. They're online right now? Oh, yeah, they're like constantly. I think we're online like like 20 hours a day right now. Was this an idea that the, the president suggested or the media suggested, or is it just everybody spread the idea person to person? And that is something that Putin doesn't understand. He is living in a society where there is someone on top and then you ju just should take down someone and then everything just, just you know, falls apart. But that is so much not the case with the Ukrainian resistance because there is no single center of, of decision-making process. But exactly because it is so decentralized, it is actually functioning because there are no bottlenecks uh, as you would end up in if you have this extremely centralized system. When you sit down to tweet, for example, who are you thinking is the audience? I think I'm using different platforms for different purposes. When I'm posting on Facebook, that is typically for Ukrainian audience. Uh, Twitter is not that big in Ukraine. Uh, so I'm using Twitter as a way to reach out to the international audience mainly. Okay. And uh, then there is also Instagram, which is not as political. That is more for like, uh, you know, human side of the story. They're blocking Facebook. Oh, the, the Kremlin just announced they're blocking Facebook in Russia. I suggest they block Vladimir Putin. That probably won't happen. Our sources in Russia tell us that the Russian internet regulator has not only shut down Facebook, but has also crippled Twitter by making it impossible to see photos and videos. And a new Russian law threatens up to 15 years of prison for any journalist whose reporting contradicts the official narrative. The Kremlin wants to make its own official channels the only news sources available to Russian citizens. Now, the old saying goes that the first casualty of war is the truth. And this war is no exception. Misinformation is flying thick and fast. For example, this video does not show the ghost of Kyiv, a Ukrainian flying ace shooting down six Russian planes. It's actually a clip from a video game a flight simulator. Even we can't guarantee that all the videos we've shown you are authentic. But one thing is certain. Russia has the much bigger military, but in the battle for public opinion, scrappy little Ukraine is running rings around its enemy, thanks to social media soldiers like Ina Sovson. As long as telling the story does help us uh, save the people, that is the most important part, I think. Sunday morning on CBS News Radio continues after this. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. It's Sunday morning on CBS News Radio. And here again is Jane Pauley. As new infections and mask mandates are falling nationwide, there's unquestionably, finally, some light at the end of the COVID tunnel. But we can't close the book on this time without Martha Teichner's look at Lessons Learned. Eighteen ninety to nineteen eighteen, nineteen seventeen to nineteen eighteen, every person buried on this snowy slope died within days, weeks of each other here in Barry, Vermont. They're all nineteen eighteen. Yep, it's pretty humbling. Nearly two hundred that fall, during that other pandemic, the nineteen eighteen so-called Spanish flu. Effie Ballou opened the wayside in July of 1918, and two months later, the pandemic hits Barry. Brian Zeccanelli and his wife Karen own the wayside restaurant now. A nice window table. Thank you. There you go. It's become a Vermont institution. But Zeccanelli has never stopped thinking about how little he knew about the 1918 flu and the fact that the grandfather he never met was one of its victims. This is where Germania was uh, laid to rest. He died at 35 that terrible year. Germinio Zeccanelli, like so many other Italian stonecutters, had moved to Barry to quarry granite to carve the nation's gravestones and often each other's, as it turned out. The Spanish flu is often referred to as the forgotten flu. And uh, if we had anything to do with it, it wasn't going to be forgotten. Germinio and all the others. We wanted to do something to memorialize him and the 50 million others worldwide that uh, died. Because to his astonishment, there was no substantial monument anywhere in spite of the staggering number of dead. The forgotten pandemic indeed. So in 2018, a century after the fact, he commissioned this one. It is unbelievable that nothing else had been done. 675,000 Americans died in that pandemic. We're at nearly a million and counting from COVID. Has history taught us anything? This time around, it confirmed the lesson from 1918, you tell the truth. 
Tulane University scholar John Barry wrote the definitive history of the 1918 flu. You heard things like, this is about the 1918 virus, this is ordinary influenza by another name, which of course it wasn't. Compare. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for. It's crystal clear that Trump himself knowingly said things that weren't true. It's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. And what did confusion? There really is no reason right now for people to run out and buy masks. Over the constantly evolving science. Keep the mask on. Due to trust and compliance. He went from no masks to you must wear a mask to you must wear two masks. You know, trust, truth, they're all interconnected. Was the result the same then and now? Well, clearly, people who might otherwise have been alive died in 1918. And clearly, this time around, people didn't believe the truth when they were told the truth. You know, the misinformation, the act of attacks on vaccines, there's no question it's killed people. We're already forgetting. Even before the pandemic is over, we are already forgetting the pandemic. Martha Lincoln is a medical anthropologist at San Francisco State University who sees 1918 amnesia happening again. I foresee, at best, a long struggle about whether we will remember really at all, and if we remember what that memory will really be. Our entertainment, she says, is like some parallel universe where COVID is invisible or long gone. Remember when we had to legally stand six feet apart from one another? Yeah, I miss it. Not everyone is choosing to forget. Back in Barrie, Vermont, the self-proclaimed granite center of the world, the monument business is booming. We're up 25 to 30%, depending on product lines. I think all domestic manufacturers are up. Rob Boulanger manages this huge Rock of Ages plant. People are pre-buying. So people are looking at their mortality, right? And wanting to take care of those final arrangements before something happens. Has, has COVID influenced that? Oh, absolutely. The longing to remember and be remembered a catalyst. I think that if we don't manage to properly memorialize those that have been lost in this pandemic, it, it says that people like my dad, his life didn't matter. Kristen Urquiza never got to say goodbye. Mark Urquiza died on June 30th, 2020, isolated on a ventilator in an Arizona hospital. It was pre-vaccine. Cases were rising, but Arizona had opened back up. Sure, maybe he should have said no to coming together with his friends to celebrate the end of the pandemic. He was given false information upon which he made choices. And that cost him his life. Urquiza founded a nonprofit advocating for permanent memorials and a COVID Memorial Day. In Congress, there's been limited support. Our elected officials would much rather move on. And I'm here to say, 
we're not going to let you. I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't really many memorials. Really? Yeah. But a million dead? Are they invisible? Which party is going to take credit for that? <laughs> you know, there's been an effort to create a COVID commission like the 9-11 commission, which unfortunately nobody seems eager to accept. For John Barry, the 1918 flu should be justification enough, proof of the cost in human lives of forgetting. There will be another pandemic if we allow the lessons that could be learned from this not to be learned, then we are really fools. The Bible tells us the story of David who slew the giant Goliath. Mo Rocca now recounts that tale of courage and looks at the man some see as David's modern-day counterpart. Despite its military might, the global Goliath Russia meeting its modern-day David. A vast invading army under the command of an autocrat. So David fight, fighting against Goliath, and we, we really are David against Goliath. A much smaller country under siege. Its leader refusing to flee. President Vladimir Zelensky, who is leading a defiant nation in this David and Goliath battle. When it was clear that Zelensky was staying, what did you think? I thought, he's a leader, he's a David, and Putin is a coward. Steve Leader is senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. We have elderly Ukrainian women making Molotov cocktails in their basement. If that's not a David Goliath story, I don't know what is. In the biblical story of David and Goliath, the Israelites are outmatched by the Philistines and the giant Goliath. Only a shepherd boy named David, armed with a sling and five smooth stones, is willing to challenge Goliath. With a single shot, he fells the giant and the Philistines flee. Every one of us at one point or another has faced frightening odds. There are many stories like this where a powerful narcissist, a bully, frankly, ends up being crushed under the weight of his own demagoguery and his own narcissism. Fighting increasingly grim odds is Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky, who became famous playing a school teacher. Доброе утро. Who unexpectedly becomes president of Ukraine. And whose words as the actual president have galvanized people well beyond his country. Even if you destroy all our cathedrals and churches, you will not destroy our sincere faith in God in Ukraine. You know, he was raised in the Soviet Union as a Jew. He understands what it means to be an outsider. Soviet Jews had their passport stamped, right? With a particular yes. mark. Yes, correct. A black mark on your passport that said, you're a pariah. And so he understands a bully and of having to do the best you can with what you have. That's in his DNA, as is the DNA of Goliath in Putin. That might makes right. 
that the leader is not accountable for the suffering of his own people. For the moment, as Russia continues its merciless advance, Zelensky, a 44-year-old husband and father, remains resolute. We have nothing to lose but our own freedom and dignity. For us, this is the greatest treasure. I can't be the only one asking himself, what would I do? Could, could I be that person? There's an old Yiddish expression that I think of often, which is, when you must, you can. If you had asked Zelensky five years ago, do you think you could be the man who five years from now stands up to Vladimir Putin and the Russian army? He might have said no. But Rabbi Leader says a challenge this great also requires a certain kind of faith. In order to be a David, you have to be in denial of the full powers of the Goliath, right? It takes some denial. The truth of the story is uh, you may not always win with courage, but you've got a hell of a lot better chance. Sunday morning on CBS News Radio continues in a moment. It's Sunday morning on the radio. The topic is leadership, and the commentary comes from our John Dickerson. Before Vladimir Zelensky became president of Ukraine, he played one on TV. Since the Russian invasion, Zelensky has become a president actors across the world would rush to portray. President Tut. Against Russian claims he'd fled his country, Zelensky was defiant. Targeted for assassination, he refused a U.S. offer of escape. I need ammunition, not a ride, he said. This may be the last time you see me, he told the leaders of the European Union. His appeal for support was so moving, they increased their sanctions on Russia significantly. His commitment to a nation that has been free for just 30 years refreshed the resolution of democracies that are much older. It is a hero's story, but it wouldn't have a very long run without an audience. Leaders are made by followers who get a say in what they're being led to. And Ukrainians echoed the certain trumpet. Ukrainians stood before tanks. Ukrainians mobbed Russian vehicles. Ukrainians returned to their country to take up arms. We are watching what Viktor Frankl identified the last time evil burned Europe. A Nazi concentration camp survivor, Frankl wrote, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. What Vladimir Putin has tried to snuff out, he has instead illuminated on the world stage. Ukrainians are not squatters on some stray Soviet scrap. They are human, and we are watching them and their leader make the basic choice that defines what it means to be human. Here you come again. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. What happens when one of the most prolific authors on the planet teams up with the reigning queen of country music? Lee Cowan has a most entertaining answer to that question. Dirty old river running through my town. 
The Bluebird Cafe in Nashville is home to some of the best short story writers around. After all, story is what makes a great country song. And every writer, There's two of you. especially acclaimed ones like novelist James Patterson, know just how hard that can be. I actually tried to write some country and western songs, you know, knock em, sock em kind of love songs. Did you ever perform them? No. That's because, in part, Patterson was too busy becoming a novelist. He's written or co-written more than 200 of them, and he has more bestsellers than anyone. He's at home in Music City. He earned his master's from Vanderbilt University, and he's never forgotten the faces of wannabe country stars wandering from bar to bar. You could not sit in one of those bars for more than 10 minutes without somebody coming in off the street, sitting down and playing. For his latest novel, Patterson decided to write about a nobody coming to Nashville with dreams of becoming a somebody. Even he admits that's a tale as well-worn as an old pickup, which is why he needed a co-writer who would actually live that life to give the book a little sparkle. I asked him, I said, why do you need me? You're doing pretty good on your own. She said, he's that guy that writes about serial killers, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I knew that. Yep, the legendary Dolly Parton. Jolene, 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 Jolene. It might seem an odd pairing at first. The girl from the Great Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. Here you come again. Who became one of the queens of country music, teaming up with a former Manhattan ad executive turned bookworm who's barely touched a guitar in his life. They hadn't even met until 2019, when Patterson flew to Nashville to pitch Dolly on the idea. <laughs> and you'd even go pick him up at the airport sometimes. Yeah? I'm always there to pick him up. I wouldn't dream of letting him come into town. That's so sweet. But that's what you do out of respect. But I, I just ain't gonna send somebody after him if I can at all be there. I mean, if you guys hadn't clicked and not particularly liked each other, would it, it, it wouldn't have happened, no. Now, we, we, would, we didn't have to do it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't make that many friends. And a lot of my old friends are, have gone on. And I've got some friends. You don't always trust them. After you get famous, you don't know who's a friend and who's not. Their collaboration is called Run, Rose, Run, the story of a young country singer named Annie Lee who comes to Nashville only to find that the music industry can be just as heartbreaking as the secret she's carrying. She pointed one perfect blood-red nail at Annie Lee's heart. Here's my advice for you, Annie Lee Keys. Get the hell out of Nashville while you still can. Annie Lee finds comfort in a retired country music icon named Ruthanna, read in the audiobook by who else? Dolly herself. Annie Lee swallowed. Pardon me? It's a hard, rough business. A tiny thing like you, you'll be chewed up and spit out like a hunk of gristle. I'm hoping to get to play that character when we do a movie of the book, which we hope to do uh, at some point. The book is, in a lot of ways, sort of a cautionary tale about the music business. Mm -hmm. It is. It shows a lot of the dark side of it. That People that have been in it, like me, you know that because you, you've lived it. And did you experience a lot of that? Oh, yeah, you see all that. All the managers, the people that rip you off, that try to steal your songs, they'll con you, they do whatever. I have seen it all. And I will she was a reservoir of country music research for Patterson, but as it's been all her life, Dolly doesn't enter in anything 
just to do it halfway. If I take on a job, a partnership with somebody, I'm going to do my part. I mean, how would I have been able to promote that book if I did not have some involvement? How would I have allowed that? Because if people asked me, I'd have felt like the biggest liar in the world. Put on my jeans, my favorite shirt. Instead of just writing dialogue or helping block out chapters, Dolly added this. Did they come to you pretty easily? Oh yeah, songs come to me easy, especially if I know what I'm writing about. Patterson's characters were shaped by lyrics that Dolly wrote herself. Is it easy? No, it ain't. Can I fix it? No, I can't. But I sure ain't gonna take it lying down. A couple days after I got there, she sent me the lyrics for seven songs. Just a couple days. Yeah. You wrote seven songs in yeah. a couple days. Yeah. Well, he would send me pages, and I would get ideas for the songs. And all of a sudden, it was like, Ta-da, you write songs. He writes books. And so I just started doing it, not thinking about anything. Big dreams and faded jeans fit together like a team. Always busting at the seams. Big dreams. The album of Dolly's 12 original songs will be released this week in tandem with the novel. That's a rarity. Writing is where Parton and Patterson are more alike than you might think. It isn't a chore for either of them. It's as much a joy as it is a necessity. Are you still writing pretty much every day? I mean, do you? Are oh, you sort I write of like, all the time. Yeah? I'm always scribbling something down. Do you, do you just Any write things down on the knows. back of envelopes? Oh, I or? write on everything, anything. Chewing gum papers, <laughs> boxes. All writers do. They do. Yeah. Do you do the same thing? Uh-huh. You do. Yeah, the thing I don't do anymore idea. is I will not get up in the middle of the night and write stuff down. Did you used to do My that? My belief, yes. My belief is that if it's good, I'll remember it. There's too many times I've got, I get up in the morning and I look at it and I go like, what? <laughs> That's it? When you dreamed it, yeah, I've dreamed things, but I'm not lazy enough, like some people, to not get up. <laughs> they are both champions of literacy. Dolly's own father couldn't read, which is why she cherished every book that came into her house. But I write a song about everything, so I go and call, books, books, I love books, the way they smell and feel and look. From my first glance, I was hooked on books, books, books. It's a little song for my kids. Over the last 25 years plus, her Imagination Library has gifted more than 150 million books to kids under the age of five. For his part, Patterson has quietly donated millions of dollars to school libraries as well as independent bookstores and more. Only 45% of the kids in this, in this country read at grade level. Is that right? Which is a disgrace. So two of the biggest names in their respective fields not only share a cause and a byline, but a lot of mutual respect. Well, I learned he's better than I even hoped that he would be. Honestly, he's, a, he's so smart, he's so cool, and he listens very well. You know, he accepts. He knows who's who. He knows. I know who's boss. Dolly gave Patterson an autographed guitar for his birthday. He says he's never learned to play it, preferring instead to let his co-writer sing us off as only a Nashville legend can. Anyway, 
anyway, that's kind of how they how they go. Sunday morning on the radio continues in a moment. You're listening to CBS Sunday Morning on the radio. Tomorrow on CBS Mornings, Michael Lewis. And coming up next weekend here on Sunday Morning, a little tennis with Hollywood heavy Will Smith. Music and memories from Keith Richards. And Harvey Firestein has stories to tell. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.